Every artist knows that every one of their tools matters. So the kind of graphite that I'm going to use or the kind of paintbrush or ink or canvas or program or tablet, you know, whatever it is, every artist knows that the tools matter. And with regards to role-playing as art, every one of our practices affect the outcome. So uh, really uh, a willingness to break habits and to adopt new ones, or even just to try new ones in, in a good faith way. If people are willing to do that, they will find a whole, a whole wealth of possibilities that their old habits had kept them locked away from. If you say the real life fills up your days and you don't have time to play, well, midlife is the best time to start a new role playing phase. And you need a rescue, Chase coming at you with a rescue, a role play rescue. Chase gonna help my friend. Let's sit down the game. My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers. This episode, we are joined by someone who, despite my only meeting them a scant few weeks ago via Twitter, has become a strong acquaintance and a sizable influence on my thinking. The focus is upon the concept of otherworld immersion and the way in which my guest thinks about this in their own fantasy role-playing games. We've had two conversations over the past month and today you get to join us on our first chat. Before we begin, I must apologise for the quality, once again, of my voice during this episode. Thankfully Daniel can be heard perfectly, but my side of the mic sounds like I'm doing a bad impersonation of Darth Vader. I'm not, contrary to appearances, speaking into an empty glass jar. This is Season 6, Episode 11, Otherworld Immersion, with Daniel Jones. Let's dive in. Daniel Jones is a self-confessed IT nerd and the man behind the eudaimonic geekery blog, musing on the art of RPGs. He describes himself as an idea tinkerer, sharing interest in writing and philosophy with far more followers than I could dream of, probably because he's a published novelist. Daniel hails from Forestfield, southern Indiana, where he is working on his beloved primeval fantasy RPG. Welcome to the show, Daniel, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. I uh, wanted to have this chat with you because we were having a, I think it was a Twitter conversation or an email conversation um, about a term you called otherworld immersion. Um, but before we dive into that, I thought I'd ask some basic questions, if that's all right. Sure. How did you get started with role-playing games? Oh, I was 11 years old um, and just a kid on the playground and uh, some of the kids had the blessed red box edition. And so all of us got pulled in um, and I immediately was on fire for it uh, as an 11 uh, year old 
couldn't get enough of it. Uh, and then within a couple of years, I had gone to uh, advanced D&D, which uh, everyone in, in my playing group had done. And um, it was just a, a real passion uh, up until probably uh, I was 15 or so. And then, you know, life pulled me this way and that. Um, and then, you know, I returned to it uh, after high school and uh, then again in college. And you've been gaming all the way through since college? No, interestingly, uh, I uh, played in college and that's where I got serious about creating my own system uh, and had many inter- iterations of it. And we were uh, playing it heavily. Uh, and by heavily, I mean um, probably 40 to 60 hours a week we were we were gaming and I was constantly tweaking my system. So it had taken over my life, um, at that. And, and so, uh, interestingly at a, about 2006, um, I decided to write and decided just to put RPGs behind me. And I did so for 10 years and out of the blue, um, I actually had a dream where I fixed, uh, the combat mechanic in my system. And you got to keep in mind that I had not been thinking about my system for years. I had moved on to writing and uh, it, it was my passion. It still is, but it had taken over. And then this one dream uh, threw me back into it. And I had, uh, I've learned that I can't argue with the muse. Like the muse tells me what it wants to work on and I, I pretty much have to follow it. And if I don't, I accomplish nothing elsewhere. And so um, I got back to work on it. This has been about two years. Uh, I've been working on the system again. and oh, That's primeval fantasy, right? That's right. Uh, that's a, a name I came up with uh, probably only in the past five months or so, because uh, if you are a designer and you want to make a game and you start coming up with names, just start Googling and they will all get shot down. Uh, because someone somewhere has taken them and you you can't replicate it. So uh, primeval fantasy, um, I'm, th- the term is so uh, precise for me now. Uh, it, it's so on the nose of what I want that um, it, it's what I have to it's what I have to go with. And I'm glad the others were taken. I can say that. Okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. And what you, what is it that is primeval? So uh, the term fantasy um, is, you know, pointing toward this football field of uh, things where the the connotation is so broad uh, that I I had to have something distinguish my particular vision of the fantasy genre uh, with all the others. So uh, I can I can give a negative and say a lot of things that it's not. It's anti-World of Warcraft, anti-video game uh, fantasy, uh, anti-comic book fantasy. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying that my appetite and my vision uh, points to um, what what I'm calling primeval fantasy, which is um, deeply uh, pre-modern, anti-modern, uh, fantasy genre. So, um, in, in many games, especially, uh, you know, modern day D and D it is, uh, very much the feeling is these people are dressed up as if they're from the 11th century, 
but psychologically and sociologically, they are in the 21st century. And, and many gamers are fine with that. Uh, I get it. Um, but it's not what I want. What I want is something hearkening back to uh, a feeling of Beowulf or a feeling of the Silmarillion. Silmarillion is my favorite novel. And Beleriand is the, the touchstone land that I would want to play in. Uh, so, you know, anti-modernic, anti-scientistic, um, anti-atheistic. So, you know, whenever we watch movies or read books, we're doing, we're doing that through this lens of the modern mindset, right? We've all seen hundreds of movies, um, that, you know, um, the idea of superstition. Okay. Superstition is a word that we have, uh, to look at a culture and say, Oh, isn't that quaint? They believe that burying a mushroom, uh, at a full moon, uh, next to this Oak tree is cute, but for them, this is reality. This is the way life is, and you're appeasing spirits, and you're appeasing gods, and the word superstition doesn't exist for them. It's just reality. So that's just an example of what I mean, um, that my particular goal, and, and what I'm finding out is that it's not so niche. I think there are a lot of gamers who have this appetite, uh, this itch for this other world, a, a deeply... Uh, pre-modern fantasy setting, but they don't know how to achieve it. And so that's my goal. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the experience I had as, um, I don't know, what was I about? Somewhere between 10 and 12. Uh, first coming into contact with Greg Stafford's Glorantha, which, um, you know, what you've just described sort of touches that for me as well, that, you know, his, his is very sort of Bronze Age. Um, but what I loved about it was it was, you know the spiritual realms, the the gods and the the spirits and and all those things were real for the people in that setting. And what was always difficult, and as you've kind of just suggested, is that kind of getting out of the twenty first century or the twentieth century mindset and and putting yourself into that world is really tricky to do. Mm -hmm. It is. Obviously, you've done you know some fantasy writing and also some philosophy and, and bits and pieces with that. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of like to ask what the value of role playing games is in your mind. Well, I, I think it has uh, value on, on lots of levels. Uh, primarily, it lets us escape the mess of the 21st century. Um, the 21st mm -hmm. century is a world uh, of distraction, a world of inundation, not just from information, but um, polarizing and very uh, intentionally crafted uh, information that is meant to accommodate, you know, people's agendas. So uh, mm. political pol uh, polarization, especially in the U.S., I'm, I'm assuming in the U.K. as well. Um, I mean, there's just so many things I hate about modernity um, that uh, the, the fantasy realm lets me um, escape modernity and return to a level of humanity that uh, modernity erodes. And I know that that may sound extreme, um, but that's where I am. And, and interestingly, even, you know, 75 years ago, these are the sentiments of Tolkien. And of course, the internet didn't exist in any form. 
but I, I feel the same pull back to, um, I, I'm not saying the past is, is beautiful. Uh, and, and in fact, whenever I say primeval fantasy, I'm not thinking about any particular era of the past. Um, mm. I mean, there are certain eras that reflect the picture I want, like fifth century Britain is a touchstone for me. Uh, but I mean, things are ugly and muddy and murderous and et cetera. So I'm not glorifying the past. What I'm saying is that modernity is a worldview. Um, and it's one that's, it's quite damaging to the soul. So for you, it's about sort of reaching back into what it means to be human. Yeah, I think so. I think that modernity, um, takes a lot of our humanity away. It takes a, a our ability just to think and concentrate um, and ponder, you know, anything, especially the 21st century. And it's getting worse every year. I mean, even 2015, um, just the technological addiction uh, was not as prominent. Uh, If you read books by the neurologist Carr uh, called The Shallows, um, Mm. he outlines this uh, and he's not just some, you know, um, Luddite who is, you know, trying to get people back to the Amish farms. He really is outlining how it's changing our brains and our societies. So what do you think role-playing games are doing that helps with all this then? I think role-playing games have the ability to uh, strengthen the imagination um, and well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it totally depends on what we mean by role-playing games and, and different groups uh, I mean, it's so varied that it maybe maybe I can't answer it. Uh, I can just say that for me and for those who I've observed, it's very healthy to use the imagination, to use the mind, and then the interactive, uh, which has always been a huge benefit. Uh, so you take mm-hmm. you know little ner- nerdy kids like I was, and now you're actually getting to. Uh, express your creativity in an interactive way. And that's just golden. I mean, if, if it's done properly, mm-hmm. this this can be downright therapeutic for kids, especially introverted kids. Yeah, not just kids. I mean, obviously, oh, you yeah, know that yeah. I, work, I work with them. Um, but I, and I was always struck. It's interesting what you're saying, because I'm always struck by when, when you people uh, say the sort of things that you're saying, I'm always struck by uh, the psychology really that I've, I've read over the years and, and thought about. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking about the, you know, that the idea of telling stories together and that meeting of minds that happens um, at a gaming table, that, you know, the descriptive thing. I'm thinking about, um, I was recently talking to Menyon, who has a podcast, he's over in Japan, and uh, he was talking about how language, you know, the written word, the spoken word, um, uh, has a certain magic to it that, that triggers the imagination in a way that pictures don't, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when we get together and we tell those stories, there's something there. And I'm also struck by the ritualistic nature of the role-playing game. Um, so for me, I guess those things are all being, those thoughts are all being triggered in my mind as you're speaking. It's kind of interesting. Right then, we wanted to talk about immersion. Now, to give the beef background for everyone outside of it, and as I remember it, and please correct me if I get this wrong, but basically the mention was made of the word immersion in gaming, which you know is a, is a, a, a word, I guess, fraught with misunderstanding. Um, and you expressed this idea that where you've got to with it is this, this phrase or this 
you know this this kind of touchstone of other world immersion so what's that about tell us about that yeah so going back um to uh even bef- before uh the website the forge uh but it, i was mm. greatly helped by the forge back in the day this is over what 18 years ago or so mm. um so yeah the golden egg of role players has always been this thing immersion um, and so in our small, in our small circles, we would talk about immersion and we knew what we meant because we were all the same small circle. But, uh, the problem is whenever you, you know, take it out into the wild, this, uh, word immersion ends up meaning so many things and it can be applied to so many things, um, in a different vein than what we in our circle had meant. So, for example, we can say, well, it's, it's a really immersive role-playing experience. And the question is, well, wh- what do you mean by that? Because I can be a poker player and be really immersed in playing poker or boxing mm. or, you know, whatever. And, and so in, in, a, in a, a vague sense, maybe it means I'm really into it. But that's not what a lot of gamers mean and want. Mm. And so... Uh, trying to head toward clarity, uh, I have the category of other world immersion, which that's the goal um, of our group. And the intention is to get pulled into the gaming world as if it's a real world to have this other world immersion uh, clarified with as a specific goal of we want to feel transported into the other world, as opposed to I'm playing this game, looking down at the game being played like a board, and I have these numbers, and I have to roll these dice, and then uh, there's a detachment that's going on there. And mm-hmm. that that's what, you know, the, the goal of other world immersion is to be into the other world. Okay, so it sounds like there are a number of things that essentially are barriers to that, I guess, to start with. Oh, yeah. Um, so is it worth kind of like maybe talking about some of those things, the sort sure. of things that you typically think of get in the way of what you're looking for? I, I, I'm going to take the via negativa, you know. What is it not? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, my my idea of the path of, of reaching toward this goal of other world immersion uh, first of all, is that the group has to have this as their goal. Like all of them have to have this goal. And something I've noticed, uh, not just with this issue, but with so many issues, is that groups who game together, even if they've game together for years, they don't have these simple conversations about, you know, do we want exactly what we're getting um, in the way we've been playing, like habit may have taken over when they were 16 and they never questioned their habits and goals. So, um, yeah, that's going to be the first step. Is your group uh, really after this experience? Or uh, I believe it may have been you in one of your podcasts who recently said uh, some gamers are just beer and chips gamers, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, if that's what they want, they, uh, just being explicit about what they want is the first step, obviously. So assuming that that is a group's, uh, desire to have that experience, then we move into how this can happen. 
And again, going back to uh, one of the mantras of the forge system matters. Um, and I think that that is a, a key answer is that the system you're using very much matters uh, in reaching this goal or in any goal. One thing that I, I believe people don't immediately see is that the word system does not just mean the particular mechanics for accomplishing A, B, or C. It's not just look at this yeah. chart and, you know, what do these dice say? A system mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, the three pillars. You have the methodology and the mechanics, and then in most cases, the setting, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. I would say that for this goal, the methodology is predominant. Uh, how the GM... Uh, and how the players uh, function around the table, uh, that's the primary mover of the needle, you know, toward other world immersion. Yeah. Um, and so specifically, it means escaping all of the habits of uh, board gaming role playing, which mm. means getting rid of, you know, pawn stance, as we used to call it, where you're looking mm. down on the table. Uh, with an isometric point of view and that that uh, on a practical level that means players should not be looking at the actual maps of the actual world or dungeon mm -hmm. or cave because that pulls us into a board gaming mentality uh, probably the strongest method that that works um, is the the unity of perspective methodology which means so let's contrast two different gaming styles. Let's say you're playing a thief and you are sneaking up on a group of enemies. And I say, okay, Che, uh, give me a roll and let's compare numbers. And then you look at your die, you look at your result. And now you know whether you succeeded or failed or made noise or didn't make noise. Mm -hmm. Now let's contrast that with a different methodology where you are telling me, okay, I'm sneaking up and I'm going to wait and I'm listening. And then I start rolling and you don't see any of the results. And then you tell me more actions. I go around the tree and I look up and I see if there's anything. And then I keep rolling. I'm never telling you any of the results. I simply tell you what you're experiencing. So, um, I'm not saying I invented that. I'm saying that that's, that's the methodology that pulls you into the perspective of your character. And mm -hmm. like that, uh, that kind of practice across the board uh, really pays off. And look at it from a historical perspective, um, to my knowledge, that's kind of the way it started. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I go back, if you've watched the... Um, the, the Secrets of Blackmore, oh, yeah. uh, the movie about the early days, you will probably be aware of what I'm talking about, this idea that actually, you know, Arneson was making die rolls on the whole for his players. Um, and I think we see that reflected in uh, OD&D, where actually it's the instruction is that the the referee rolls the stats for generating a character. Even, oh, I know. did not remember that. Yeah, so um, that that is that is there right at the beginning. You know that actually the the what we would perhaps call the game master or the referee of the game is the person who's in control of the mechanics of that game in that sense and is translating as much as possible into description. And 
I guess what what has um, occurred over time is that we have you know become more uh, used to player facing the numbers and the dice and everything else. And so I guess what you're suggesting is that a return to that more, and it's going to be a great word to use, a bit of a primeval way of running the game, you know? Yeah, yeah I think so. And when I look back at what um, Arneson uh, was doing, uh, I especially love that that documentary, um, the Blackmore, Secrets of Blackmore documentary, mm. is that we have evolved to the point where um, we we realize that we want the mechanics to matter. Um, at the same time, we want the player to have that immersive experience. So, for example, mm-hmm. let's say that Arneson uh, GMing his game. I believe I'm correct in saying that he trusted his gut, and his players trusted his gut. Uh, as they're as they're making rulings, and I think that that's a huge part of GMing. GMing is an art form, and mm. um, it, it a lot of it comes down to trusting your internal heuristics. But they should be um, educated and honed heuristics. And so um, uh, the second pillar is uh, the mechanics. It's somewhere behind the methodology, where. Um, what I think matters is mechanics that are in service to the reality of the world, not mechanics that are in service to themselves. So mm. when I look at um, any iteration, let's say D&D 3.5 or D&D 5, mm. um, it is a world with its own physics and cause and effect that are really divorced from real world uh, feelings of, of here's what happens when you fall off an eight foot uh, roof. Okay. It's, yeah. it's not catastrophic, but pretty much we've been inching toward comic book um, mechanics, comic book um, reality so that I really mm-hmm. can jump off of a 25 foot roof and kind of bounce around, get up and start running. So I think that those the mechanics can actually uh, damage the other world immersion we're seeking because the the less human the feeling of the mechanics, the less I can actually relate. So you're wanting it to be more grounded in the experience that we have as human beings, so that as humans in a role playing, you know, in that world, in we're role playing and we're trying to experience this, this other world that actually there's nothing that it's going to jar that. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, that's the goal. That's the aim is that, um, you really, uh, just think of all the things that we would go through if we were really adventurers. So, you know, getting, uh, a sword driven through my shoulder, is going to have lots of effects and it's not about numbers. It's about pain and impairment from getting wounded and uh, things like that, that resonate with our own, you know, psychology. Right. Mm. And so whenever these mechanics are, are brought in uh, they can really enrich that experience and deepen that other world immersion. Okay, so that sounds reasonable for you know the physical and practical things. You're essentially assuming a sort of Earth-like 
uh, Fantastic Realm. Where does things like magic and stuff fit into that? Well, uh, I think they fit in fine. Uh, there's two things to say about that. Is And the first one um, is that fantasy is not in any kind of opposition with reality. Fantasy is a genre, right? And so all we're talking about is different things being brought into the, that universe. And so you can still have um, this feeling of, of realism throughout everything in the world. And magic does not disrupt that in, in any way. Hmm. The second thing is, is that I, I believe that the mechanics, uh, both for magic and non-magic, need to still be restrained. So, for example, in, in my system, there are supernatural events and people, and you can, uh, of course, play a spellcaster, but you will never be throwing nuclear bombs, and you will never be taking over entire battlefields of people. Um, because whenever you start heading in that direction, uh, you... I mean, it becomes, in my mind, silly uh, because you're essentially now a god. You're now doing things that even Zeus didn't do in in any of the the epics, right? Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I I mean, of course, that all depends on the genre you're heading toward, right? It's heading. It's all a question of which setting you specifically want. Um, but mm. yeah, I, I'm. I have to um, always. This is probably one of the um, elements of system design that has taken the most of my time is going through every one of the spells that I'm creating and keeping them restrained. Uh, but it, it ends up working because of the specific setting that I'm after. And so what, how that plays out is you're in a world where there is certainty of the supernatural, but no one can get their hands on it. It's always this thing that's slightly out of reach and it, it, it inspires fear and awe. Uh, it's always bound up with this feeling of the, the supernatural realm of gods and mm -hmm. spirits. And so, yeah, I mean, this, of course, is just with, you know, what I particularly want with my setting. So what have you discovered? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that is saying you didn't think it was, well, you thought it was maybe going to be a seriously niche of a niche of niche, mm -hmm. um, but it's not. It's turning out not to be. Um, so what have you discovered about other players who are interested in this approach? Yeah, um, what I'm finding is that there are many players who they may love uh, comic books and um, all of those action movies, but they love them separately from the experience they want because the, many of them are still in love with medieval fantasy. Many of them are in love with Tolkien um, and they want to move toward that experience of really living in Beleriand or Middle Earth. Um, mm. And they're finding that, I, I mean, I hate to sound like I'm bashing on D&D. It's just a, a very different uh, animal than what I and what many others want. People want, mm. um, they actually want more restraint in the system with regards to how tough they are and how much they can get away with and mm. uh, how much power they can ever wield. In, back on the forge, there, there was the old uh, split 
which I know generates a lot of arguments and I, I don't want to generate any of those arguments, but we were essentially talking back then about uh, gamist players where the point of, of it really was be powerful, get more toys, get tougher, kill bigger monsters, etc. And um, I mean, that appeals to me very much as a board game or a miniature board game. Uh, I love that. It's tons of fun. I, and that's for me, that's a, a beer and chips kind of scenario. But for role playing, it's not what I want. And I'm finding that uh, other players want this uh, same deeply pre-modern world setting and people. I mean, I'm. Uh, we we were talking before we started uh, the interview a little bit about you know mutual background, and you obviously have a background interest in you know fantasy and philosophy. I teach philosophy and moral philosophy, and um, I don't know. To me, there's a lot there that I uh, always feel gets left out of role playing games. You know that um, I hear it often said that things like alignment, what was the point, and you know all of that stuff. And, and I'm deeply aware in this conversation that that all of those those thoughts and ideas, whilst completely valid, I mean people can do what they want at their table, um, but they come out of this 21st century postmodern or modern mindset. Yeah. Um, and I guess what we're talking about here is um, you step back into that um, world um, that's more primal and, you know, divorces itself from the attitudes of today. Um, and I, I don't know what it is. Is there a, is there a, um, a, a draw towards that? Or is there perhaps also for some people, you know, a fear of that, uh, a kind of a return to some sort of uncivilized base form of self? Or am I going too deep? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess the <laughs> I guess the question is how um, how much do people think about uh, the direction they want to go in, uh, and we can also ask questions like um, why why do we want what we want? Uh, it's 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 very complicated. <laughs> that that's a cheap <laughs> but uh, honest answer. It's it's very complicated. Um, I, uh, I find deep value in literature. Uh, I find, I mean, the reason that Silmarillion is my favorite book is, uh, a mixture of his masterful prose, his mythology, and the feeling I get from being in, uh, Beleriand, which is the, the mm. land of Silmarillion. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a, a straight, simple answer, but I know that the appetite uh, is out there that people find the same rich experience uh, by by returning to that subgenre, and uh, again, sadly, uh, there they have this uh, appetite, and many gamers um, are simply stuck in the habit of well, this is the way we've always played, uh, this is the system we've always used, and. Uh, then what's interesting is that they'll say things like, well, I don't have time to learn a new system. And then, you know, they play hundreds of hours a year and I, it's, <laughs> it really is shocking. I'm like, so you're really not willing to spend, you know, 30 minutes having a serious discussion with your group. And then you're not willing to spend, you know, $40 at, on a new system and trying a new system. It, it really is uh, counterproductive for them. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you say because I think um, you know there's a, there's a comfort, isn't there, that it, if what's familiar, 
you know, yeah. and I always say to the kids that I teach, you know, that, um, you know, you've got your circle of comfort, uh, comfort zone, it might be called by some, um, but the magic ha- happens outside of that. And um, yeah, how do you get people to make that step? That's the big question. Yeah. Um, especially because there's so many, I mean, same thing with publishing now. So uh, ever since the internet revolution with regards to publishing, uh, that happened about 10 years ago, what it could have accomplished uh, got nullified just by the mountain of people uh, where everyone is writing a book and promising that it's fantastic. And and simultaneously, everyone is uh, putting out role-playing books with a promise of this kind of experience. And it, it just gets lost uh, in the noise. And so I think mm. people get numbed to that. Oh, everyone is promising to give this kind of experience. And since everyone is promising it, they're probably all wrong. <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's the, uh, maybe that's the feeling. I'm not sure. Well, I've always felt that, um, you know, it's about the journey I've been taking over the last 18 months doing this podcast has been about, you know, trying to find out how it can make my game really good you know really deep experience and obviously that depends on the particular experience that you want as we've already outlined you know i think there's plenty of time for, i have plenty of space in my life for a bit of beer and pretzels and you know a bit of a laugh and knockabout um but equally you know yes i'm with you i crave going to those places it's interesting what you talk about um that your system problem your you know game rule problem with combat got solved through a dream because i remember being very young and it was a dream experience that you know hooked me into the concept of role playing and i guess in some ways i've been trying to get back there for what 30 odd years 38 years something like that um it's it's yeah it's, it's something that uh i don't know I've been reading, again, a lot of Carl Jung recently and, you know, about the idea of the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes wonder if, you know, what we do with role-playing doesn't tap into that, you know, or or kind of probe that in some way. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting you say that because, um, so uh, let's say people who got started uh, in the 80s, like I did Mm -hmm. as a kid, and uh, whenever people hear about role-playing, they think that uh, I'm just trying to hold on to this nostalgia, but that's really not it. Um, The reason that as an 11-year-old, I was captivated is because my imagination, you know, as children, of course, our imaginations are much more flexible. We we can shift in and out of these fantasies much better than we can as, you know, these realistic adults who have bills to pay and, and are tired, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, but, I, you know, we really can go beyond nostalgia. And by altering the way that we play, we can, we can recapture that. Um, and, you know, the devil's in the details. If you have a group who really wants to do it, they can achieve it. They just can't do it the same way they've been doing it for years. You write about um, on your blog about the art of RPGs. What do you mean? Yeah, um, I, I really uh, do believe that role playing is a unique uh, art uh, within itself and mm-hmm. one that is distinct from novel writing. And from, you know, any of the other mediums that we, we commonly go to, uh, obviously mm-hmm. many, uh, many groups see themselves as writing a story, 
Um, and that is great, but it's a, it's a totally different animal than writing a novel or writing an instructional book. These are all different, uh, different animals. And so uh, I believe role-playing is an art that can generate a specific experience unique from novels and unique from um, all other mediums. And the experience, uh, which I find so rich, is having uh, a clear picture of what you want and everyone in, in the group is on the same page about what they want and then taking the right steps to maximize it. And some of it's, of course, you know, random. I mean, you, you, there are groups out there who are, you know, the group really does matter. I mean, the kinds of maturity that are required, uh, people who are willing to be attentive. Uh, I mean, the worst thing for many GMs I've talked to through the years is having players who uh, just don't pay attention um, mm. And of course, electronics make this a hundred times worse than it ever was before. And so, yeah, there, there are a lot of, of little elements that go into it. And simply by making a list of all of the possible elements, and the biggest one, I believe, is the system. And, you know, taking these elements, put the, putting them together and saying, how can we keep working to maximize this art? And uh, again, this is a beer and chips. Gamers are all rolling their eyes when they hear this because uh, it just sounds uh, absurd. Uh, and I get it. If, if, if you don't <laughs> if you don't have that appetite, then all of this sounds silly. Right. Uh, yeah. But if you do have this appetite and I, I think the appetite is more common than is, is generally expressed and that if people actually did sit down to say, what do you actually want? What are you hungry for that um, many of them would want this other world immersive experience? I always get really frustrated by the use of the word fun. Um, now, this is going to sound really negative and probably really pretentious, but I don't play for fun. Um, to me, that's a really, um, I don't know, weak description. Um and, you know, what we're talking about is uh, reminding me of that, you know, this this idea that actually I, I want to enjoy the experience. Don't get me wrong. But actually, um, it's not as simple as we're playing for fun. You know, does that mean it um, make any sense to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, so it depends on how we're defining fun. I guess when we say the word fun, uh, the connotation might be that it's trivial or fleeting. And I mean, there are many times when the word fun just does not suffice. When I read novels that I love, I, I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word fun because the experience is too rich. It's, mm. it's too deep and it, and it, and I mean, it's enjoyable. So I'm doing it for joy, but I wouldn't use the word fun. And, and I think I understand what you're saying. And, and that's the distinguishing word I would have is fun versus joy. Yeah. And, and this, you know, it's this term you used of other world immersion. What, what actually connected with me was that, that idea of going, yeah, far deeper. I mean, you know, I had a pretty good fun game um, with my wife at the weekend. You know, I had a pretty good fun time um, out, I don't know, running with the dog when I was a kid, you know. Um, but actually, those immersive experiences that actually reach deeper 
they they are like you said they 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 are joyful but they are they can also be terrifying they can also be you know um moving they can be all of those other emotions that actually fun doesn't quite you know touch yeah yeah i i totally agree fun is kind of a, a fleeting lighter uh it's like watching a comedy it's fun uh but if i watch uh, a true horror movie I'm I'm enjoying it because of the array of emotions, but yeah, fun isn't the mm. right word. Eh? And and with gaming, whenever I hear gamers talk about having fun, they may mean the deeper experience, but you know, my connotation is the more kind of trivial experience. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, <laughs> I'm I'm probably being really pretentious. Well, yeah, it's some it's semantics, and and uh, I mean it. I mean, people having conversations is about being on the same page with you know uh, things like that. So I think it's fine conversation to have. Uh, I don't think it's damaging as as long as you qualify yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you know, role play rescue is all about people getting back to the role playing table. Um, what advice have you got for that? Um, I, I would say, first of all, uh, ask yourself, um, do you really miss it? And, um, do you miss it more than what you're spending your time on now? And the, the answer is probably yes. I don't know Hmm. any serious gamer who played when they were younger, who doesn't still have the appetite somewhere in there. Um, and then they find that they are just wasting their time on things that are not bringing joy. So um, if, if that assumption is true, then just ask yourself, do I want to recapture that experience that I had of exploring my imagination with others? And I mean, it, nowadays, the internet, for all the harm it does us, has opened up the door to game again with people that may live a thousand or 5,000 miles away. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't enjoy playing online by comparison at all. It's, it's much more um, tiring and hard to push through that barrier, but it is better than nothing at all. And it, it can be done. You know, those people you played with when you were in college, you can, return to playing with them and just ask yourself if you don't really want to throw away your Netflix, throw away, you know, however many hours you spend on social media or watching just dumb TV shows. Okay. We've talked about uh, RPGs art. We've talked about other world immersion. We talked about, you know, your, kind of desire to return to primeval fantasy and the system that you're working on uh we talked about perhaps some of the value of of role-playing games and and all the way back to where you got started what haven't we covered that you wanted to say well uh (laughs) i mean the biggest uh i don't know if this will this will fit in or not i I guess the biggest thing is what i ended on which is asking yourself if you should you know return to the thing you loved um I would love to see gamers be open to uh, good faith attempt at new systems. I think it's sad that people, you know, they've gotten themselves to the point when they are actually role playing and they're they're getting together uh, through one means or another. 
but then they're stuck in the old system and old habits. And this is another layer of questioning of, you know, if you really do want that experience, are you willing to break other habits? And some of those habits are systemic or methodological. Um, Methodology, uh, getting groups to change their methodology is the hardest single thing you can get another group to try because they can all look at a chart and a, and a rule that says under this experience, roll this dice and get this result. The harder thing is change the way you set up your table so that players can't see the miniature figures. Change the way that you have a map on the wall and you point to a spot on the wall and say, you're here and now you're going to go here. Get rid of the dungeon map that says you're in this room and and now you're going down this hall. Because all of those elements, they sound trivial and even like neurotic uh, with regards to why am I not doing things the way I used to? And it's because, and this goes back to art, every artist knows that every one of their tools matters. So the kind of graphite that I'm going to use or the kind of paintbrush or ink or canvas or program or tablet, you know, whatever it is, every artist knows that the tools matter. And with regards to role-playing as art, every one of our practices affect the outcome. So uh, really uh, a willingness to break habits and to adopt new ones, or even just to try new ones in, in a good faith way. If people are willing to do that, they will find a whole, a whole wealth of possibilities that their old habits had kept them locked away from. It's interesting what you're talking about. I found simple things like um, recently uh, running Dolman Woods uh, in a playtest for Gavin Norman. Um, I just started using a pencil and paper instead of any other kind of, you know, tool for writing and making notes mm-hmm. we also took away everything apart from you know talking online we were just using video chat real dice and um it's, it's really interesting because the experience became very rich when i did things like yeah sometimes i asked a player to roll some dice for me but I didn't tell them why mm-hmm. um and other times i'd be rolling totally in secret like you were describing earlier you know and you're right the experience completely changed the game mechanics were exactly the same as we played them any other time but actually the experience of of that altered radically Mm -hmm. that's right and and that has so many applications and um i mean it it, again it it sounds like you know um I, i many gamers um feel insulted whenever you start suggesting um, methodological changes because they feel like you're saying, well, the way you're doing it is wrong and go to my way. And, and that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that there there is a level of objectivity to art and all of the pros know that. And they don't just you know, grab a piece of charcoal and start scrawling away on a rock randomly. Uh, and produce masterpieces. That's that's not how it happens. And uh, simultaneously with role-playing games, we uh, get specific results from specific actions, uh, which is, as I said, primarily method, 
but also mechanics and also uh, very specific settings. I suppose this is one more thing I could say about the specific fantasy uh, subgenre that I want, which I, I call primeval fantasy. And it, it really does require pre-game conversations about what this setting looks like and what the people think like and act like. Um, and uh, again, uh, some, some gamers will just balk at that because uh, it sounds like you're being intentionally lofty or uh, intentionally niche with what you want. But again, uh, it is just, I've seen it over and over again. It, it, it bears uh, remarkable fruit whenever the players know they're in a world that is highly distinct from uh, the 21st century. It's ironic. I mean, I, I remember many times over the years when I've talked about various different methodological changes um, and tried some things and failed many things. Um, but the experimentation was what was important to my mind. But every time from outside, I've met opposition of, why Why would you waste your time on that? I haven't got time for that. And like you said earlier, time is always invoked as a, you know, for example, um, asking a player to really work through with me in a sort of a, a mini interview before we play, you know, to sort of just kind of get a sense of who the characters are. And often I would suggest that I will play an NPC and we will have a conversation character to character, you know, just to discover a little bit about that character and my NPC. And I've had people say to me, you know, you're crazy. Why would you waste your time on that? And it's like, for me, it's just not necessarily a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, and that that is a signal that that gamer probably doesn't want the same experience that you want. Or, which is uh, fine. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> fine. Yeah. I mean, beer and chips is great. Um, and, you know, life is exhausting. And if you need your gaming time to be the beer and chips experience, then that's that's great. But um, there are many who who want the the deeper, um, immersive, you know, joyous experience. It's a rich experience. It's the difference between going and watching an Adam Sandler movie uh, and going and watching uh, Apocalypse Now. It's two radically different experiences. And I feel it's probably on a spectrum as well. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. That actually you would, you know, because we're almost painting it as, you know, beer and chips versus deeply immersive. Yeah. yeah. But actually there's a, I mean, I feel there's probably a journey. I mean, I feel like I'm on that journey. I feel there's a journey to go on to get there. And um, like you said, it's almost a question of itself, right? To immerse, to get into that other world. Yeah, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but what was the triggering point for yourself to actually choose to get back into it? Was there a specific moment that you can cite? I think I've had several moments in my time. Um, I think when I started gaming, as I said to you, I had some deeply imaginative dreams, I guess, or and actually they didn't feel so much like dreams. Uh, Greg Stafford, when he, he talked about and wrote about Glorantha, said he discovered Glorantha in 1966. Um, and I kind of, I kind of relate to that in some ways, you know, I discovered my fantasy world, my Kovnir in, in, you know, about 1983 or something. Um, and I think what there's been is that I've had various gaming experiences where it just felt empty. And every single time I've pushed towards more immersive experience and try to get back to that specific experience that I had, you know, as a kid and bring that to the table, I've found that richer. 
Um, yeah. But I've found also that, you know, like you said, I guess up till now, I've not talked about it openly enough, you know, like in actual fact, I've kind of, maybe I've been afraid that others would reject that or think I was pretentious or too serious. I think Hobbs and I were talking about this in a recent episode, you know, yeah. uh, Jason Hobbs and I talked about being too serious in our game and always being told by people we're far too serious. Um, and I guess I've been sensitive to that. Hmm. Uh, but you know, I I I feel that there are there are specific kind of things that that trigger that um, and remind me of that. And as you said earlier, it's not nostalgia; it's uh, a yearning for a different realm. You know, a level of imagination that's different. Yeah, and it is. Uh, you're absolutely right, and it's a distinct experience from novels. Novels can generate this for us. And again, my hmm. touchstone is Silmarillion. But um, the gaming experience is it's different because you're all uh, participating. You're all uh, of the same mind with regards to the appetite and the goal. And you're all uh, working together to achieve that goal. And wherever you are on that journey of achieving your goal or not, uh, the fact that you're all working together to achieve it is another um, a, another nuance of the experience uh, that you can't get from a novel. So mm. uh, that that's another added bonus. If you get um, a group that's like-minded enough uh, and they're working together, there's a synergy there that uh, is, is very rewarding. Mm. I always feel as well, it's like my understanding of how um, neuroscience in the last 20 years has really taken things forward. And one of the things that I think we started to understand more since the 80s and through the 90s is how, you know, empathy works and how, you know, that the the human beings, we re how we read each other and how we're able to connect on deeply emotional and psychological and and sort of imaginative levels. And I think this is why doing it across on the line is so much harder and so much more tiring um, because we don't have all the same cues and there, there are physical barriers between us called computer screens. Yeah. Um, but when you're at a table, it's that it's just, there's the magic of the fireside story, but it's but it's in a it's contained within a series of, of behavioral rituals that are the game um, that actually, you know, we, where we all meet and we experience together something that is greater than any single one of us would have imagined. Yes, absolutely. Wow, we went deep. <laughs> Your ratings are either going to explode or plummet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind either way. Yeah. I think um, this is a, a really deep conversation, and we could probably keep going for hours and hours and hours. But um, <laughs> you know, it's it's fabulous to begin, and I, I think for me, it's just great to out that feeling and that desire, yeah, to actually engage with somebody on that. So, thank you so much for that conversation. I really appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. I really enjoyed it, Daniel James. Thanks so much for your time. I'll bid you adieu. All right, take care. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks again to Daniel Jones for coming to talk about Otherworld Immersion and his own primeval fantasy RPG system. 
Thank you for taking the time to come and listen to us talking about our fascination with these somewhat arcane concepts. Don't forget, because we are an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. And if you've enjoyed listening to Daniel, please consider sharing the episode on social media. You can find Daniel himself at Primeval Fantasy on Twitter. Thanks as ever to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. If you want to throw a dollar in the tip jar, from which I promise I wasn't speaking during that interview, please hop on over to the Patreon page and join the community. Members get early access to episodes, bonus material, and you are invited into the Roleplay Rescue Discord, where you can see me whine on about gaming every day. That's patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Come and join the conversation. And that's it for today. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on. Game on.